From the Heart.org Radio, this is The Fellow's Corner. Good afternoon. I'm John Gala, one of the moderators at The Fellow's Corner, and I'm here in the studio today with Dr. Mike Cuff for the first of many planned conversations in our Ask the Expert series, where we hope to hear the opinions and thoughts of respected leaders on issues important to cardiology fellows. Mike currently serves as the Vice President of Medical Affairs for the Duke University Health System. Welcome, Mike. Thanks very much, John. I'm glad to be with you today. Good to talk to you. Mike, to frame your credentials for the listeners, maybe you could give us a brief overview of your education and work background prior to coming to your current job. Sure. Well, I'm, uh, I'm obviously a cardiologist by training. Uh, I was an uh, undergrad at MIT and was one of the few people foolish enough not to go work for Oracle in the mid-1980s. I uh, came to Duke Medical School, and I've stayed at Duke ever since. Um, but uh, during my residency, served as a chief resident, a faculty position here at Duke. Uh, as I was uh, beginning my cardiology fellowship, I jumped out during some of my research years and served as an administrator at the Duke Clinical Research Institute for Dr. Califf, effectively filling a non-physician role for many years. Uh, I was, uh, uh, after that time, uh, flipped back into the clinical services, uh, led our cardiology practice, and then later served as vice chair of the Department of Medicine uh, before uh, joining my current position uh, as uh, vice president for medical affairs and chief medical officer. I currently oversee quality safety, GME, the system CMOs, aspects of clinical research at the Duke site, as well as uh, our employed physicians and several other functions. Great. Um, For today's discussion, I'd like to focus on the process of negotiating a faculty position at an academic institution like Duke following cardiology fellowship. In talking with other fellows, this transition from fellowship to academic practice can be a period of profound uncertainty, and I'm hoping that you can provide some helpful guidance for aspiring academicians. Well, I'll do what I can. I, I think I can probably be helpful to your listeners today. Great. Well, I know that one of the cardinal rules in job negotiations is to wait for the right time to talk about money, Uh, but as it's likely the most anticipated conversation in the job search, I'm going to start with this topic. Okay. One of the most memorable stories uh, from my training at Duke uh, was one that you told about your own experiences with salary negotiation, and I wonder if you would share that with the listeners. Uh, well, I, as a, uh, a cardiology fellow, uh, I was uh, obviously at, uh, at a point finishing up and contemplating coming on faculty, either at my own institution or another institution. And I think they also understood, as uh, many of us are today, I had a, a spouse who was also a physician who had been at, here at Duke already for several years. Uh, so I think thinking they had me over the barrel, uh, as well as uh, several other junior faculty members, all uh, uh, fellows at the time, thinking about coming on. Uh, I was uh, offered, uh, I remember very clearly, a a salary of $90,000 a year. Uh, Now, even today, that sounds like a low amount, but uh, I'm not that old that even at that time, uh, that seemed like a ridiculously small amount. And um, uh, rather than uh, simply accept that, uh, I I told them, uh, uh, not mincing words, to to go to hell. (laughs) I was was not going to accept the job that they were proposing at that salary amount and told them that I wasn't going to stay at Duke for less than uh, a certain amount that was uh, many tens of thousands uh, greater than that. 
Uh, interestingly, uh, as I understand the process now, uh, there is enormous flexibility typically uh, at, at many of our institutions from sources of funding, and indeed they, uh, they met my offer uh, without any hesitation. It was frankly only years later in different roles that uh, I had privy to all of the salaries as my uh, uh, vice chairman of the department in setting salaries and recognized that uh, my uh, thirty to forty thousand dollar a year difference uh, had played out over uh, a decade or more with some of my peers that had accepted that offer uh, all those years back and as I think about it, over ten and twenty years, uh, often these differences remain, and uh, folks are not typically good at catching up and when you think about uh, even a thirty thousand or forty thousand dollar difference played out year over year over year with benefits uh, that adds up to some real money over time and so sure. I, I think it, it it becomes very important for fellows to understand not only salary but who 's paying it and what are they expecting in return but there 's more flexibility i think than uh, than folks uh, will typically acknowledge right um you know, fellows uh, going into academics will likely be surrounded by colleagues uh, going into private practice who will uh, be reporting starting salaries uh, from the mid-200s to low-300s. Uh, do you have any advice on for fellows how to prepare for the sticker shock of going into <laughs> academics? Well, you know, it's, uh, these days, because uh, it, there is a shortage of cardiologists, you're going to find the differences are less. And uh, frankly, on top of that, you know, you, you're able to uh, accept a different lifestyle, but also a different benefit structure. Recall that often in private practice, when they talk about three hundred, even $400,000 a year, they talk about that not in terms of take-home salary, but that's kind of uh, the gross of what you're bringing home. You're often paying for a whole host of things out of there, including your own benefits, your own retirement contributions, and there may be other things as well. Whereas at a major university, you may have life insurance benefits, they may make, may make contributions to retirement plan, uh, they may pay all host of fees and uh, professional memberships. And so if you look at the total value of an academic job and as well as the stability and the simplicity of not having to run a business on your own versus some of these private practice, the difference isn't so great these days as uh, it may have once been. Right. Um, knowing what you know now about the financial aspects of academic medicine, what advice can you give to fellows uh, in negotiating their own contracts? Well, I, I think it's important to remember what you're trying to get out of the position. So you're a fellow, you're becoming a faculty member. Where, where do you want to be three and five years down the road? Uh, if you're hoping to stay in academics, and recall a lot of people do change from academic center to academic center, um, it, it remains true today, and, and I think for some great period of time in, ac in the academic setting, that your goal is to make sure you're set up so that you get publications, so that you get grant funding, but mostly so that you create a national network of, uh, of peers, people at other institutions that you know and can rely on, and they may be the sources of future jobs or, or future grants. Frankly, those types of things are transferable from institution to institution. But at, at your own academic institution, and this gets back to the finances, the goal is for you to really understand how it is that you're 
measured? What's the structure of the institution where you are? I'll give you a for instance. Here at Duke, for instance, our faculty practice plan is a wholly separate for-profit entity. So most of our faculty get one paycheck from our faculty practice plan and another paycheck from the university. The university work it recognizes your grants, your teaching, and so on. And the faculty practice plan check represents your um, uh, your uh, clinical practice. Sure. Many of the doctors here, even today, think if they get two hundred thousand, it doesn't matter whether it's a hundred thousand from each or fifty thousand from one and one fifty from the other. But I can tell you that those paychecks are very different. You pay self-employment on one; it comes with no benefits. You get university matching with uh, no self-employment taxes on the other. And so, two hundred thousand to one doctor paid one way is a very different amount to a doctor, say, paid a hundred percent through the university. And and understand who's making those decisions and how you're being measured in your system are, are among the most important things. And so as you, as you go forward and you think about the dollars, you not only have to have a sort of a total value in mind and, and understand what benchmarks are out there, like the AAMC uh, often publishes uh, median salary benchmarks by region, right. uh, but also what the split that you're accepting is, how much of your time is coming from the faculty practice and how much of it might be coming from uh, a university time, and who's responsible. Even in places where that's all employment under one umbrella, it's unusual that uh, the same administration is in charge of both components of it. Right. That's an interesting perspective. Um, what about fellows who've completed uh, procedural subspecialties like EP and intervention? Uh, do they have a different approach towards uh, valuing their contribution to the division? Uh, they, I mean, they absolutely should, but um, it is going to depend on how much clinical you accept. So, you know, recall if I have a well, I think in the old days, a cardiothoracic surgeon, very highly paid, who decides to commit 80% of his time to basic research, he's not going to be paid as if he's a cardiothoracic surgeon, 100% clinical effort. They're going to be paid at a much lower rate because they're doing research that really, uh, you know, it's a little crass, but anyone can do. So the same thing is true for, say, an electrophysiology-trained fellow taking a faculty position. To the degree that they're doing work that's really only doable by them, they certainly should expect a higher salary. And looking at the, uh, the AAMC or um, uh, other benchmarks for median salaries for, say, an assistant professor of, um, of cardiology, uh, looking at the higher end of that, that's very appropriate. On the other hand, uh, if they're instead 80% protected time and only 20% of their effort is spent in the clinical practice, uh, realize then that whoever is paying for that 80% is not likely to be able to afford a higher rate just because they happen to have credentials of, uh, of a um, of electrophysiologist. If I go today or tomorrow and become a bartender, they're not going to pay me as a chief medical officer. They're going to be paying me as a bartender despite my credentials. Sure, sure. What about uh, what about structuring uh, um, your your job time? Do you have recommendations about how to go about delineating uh, how much time you're going to spend doing research? I mean, uh, you know, the ability to get grants may be something that takes time, and being able to uh, um, be paid reasonably um, while you can work on, the, on getting those research grants, um, you're it may change over time uh, how you want to be able to, to uh, have protected time to do your research. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. It's this whole issue of, uh, of protected time. I, I actually view that very cautiously. I, I did before and I do ever more strongly now and advise people what may at first be counterintuitive. Um, you know, when you start off, uh, if you're not doing clinical work and you don't have a solid line of grant funding already lined up, uh, recognize that somebody's covering your salary. Somebody's buying you that protected time, and it's likely coming out of the clinical enterprise of either the hospital or the practice plan. And therefore, um, your division chief or department chair is going to be viewing you with um, some scrutiny over the following two years. So imagine uh, two scenarios, one where you start off 20% clinical and 80% protected, and then I'll turn second to the, the, to the flip side. Uh, that guy who starts in that first year 80% protected is going to have a pretty good life that first year. He's going to get a pretty decent salary, and he's going to have 80% uh, of his time set aside to uh, begin to file grant applications, to begin to work, say, with, uh, with fellows and peers to publish. They're going to be looking for grant funding and accepting very, various committee assignments. On the other hand, um, at the end of the year, it's unlikely that any grant funding will have come through, not so much because they haven't been successful, but the grant cycle takes a year and a half to two years to really kind of work through. So at the end of the year, the division chief and the chair are going to be making decisions about next year, and they're going to look at that person and say, well, I'm not sure I can really afford that person to be 80% protected. They may back you down to 60%. And then just as you're really understanding what you're trying to be doing and getting more um, successful at writing grants, uh, you may have kind of used up any uh, free time that you have or leverage that you have over your division chief, and he might right at that point or she might be requesting that you go 80 or 100% clinical because it's now two or three years into your job and you don't have a full funding line. That can be a very difficult time, and it's a time when a lot of junior faculty end up leaving academic medicine having uh, sort of failed or not been successful. Uh, turn that around the other way and say you accept a job that's 20% protected and 80% clinical. It's likely if you're not too uh, 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 greedy, given uh, uh, setting aside my first anecdote, mm -hmm. on, the, on the front end, that um, your clinical productivity is going to pay for most of your salary. And that 20% protected time won't look so expensive to the division T for the department chair. You can use that first year of clinical activity to begin to create those liaisons with the fellows who might do some writing and, and help uh, with grant submission that, uh, that you're doing. It's going to help you explore the center and create some seed projects. It's going to allow you to create some partnerships with other faculty, and it's going to still allow you to start that grant cycle and do that research. Uh, and then as you get to your second year, you may find you have success. And then as the grants flow, it's going to be very easy to have the discussions with your leaders and buy back, if you will, your clinical time. In other words, uh, you're going to be in a position now to say, listen, I just got a grant that funds 30% of my salary. I'm going to drop from 80 to 50% clinical and keep going like that. Sure. What's nice about that is you'll be able to start at a higher salary. You'll be able to do the clinical work, which is important and will be valued by everyone. And as you begin to buy your time back, you will have already set your point at that higher salary level, and you won't be under so much pressure in that second, third, and fourth year to be productive. And in fact, you can stay in that 80-20 model for a very long time.
you know, one further thing I sometimes recommend is everyone wants to start as an assistant professor um, with the titles. And although tenure is not so important these days, and it means different things at, um, at uh, different universities, it's still something that's often transferable. It's sometimes nice to recall that there's a tenure clock, and you can start as, say, an instructor or uh, some non-tenure track position, get that uh, work uh, kind of, uh, get the system working for you for a year or two, and then start as an assistant professor. It may seem a little funny, but it'll give you uh, a little bit more leeway to get the necessary manuscripts, grant funding, and, and traditional academic markers of success under your belt before the tenure com committee comes to you and says, hey, you've been here eight or nine years, you haven't done enough, we're not going to give you tenure. Once a university says they're not going to give you tenure, they will never revisit that. You've lost that opportunity. Right. And sometimes that makes people leave. So if you're uncertain about how successful you're going to be right from the start, maybe because you, you haven't had a great deal of success in research as a fellow, it's sometimes better to start with more clinical and maybe not even start along that tenure track in order to jump into it at a later date. That's a great insight. Uh, tenure was going to be my, my next question. Um, I guess... Uh, Wanting to uh, sort of look towards wrapping this up, I wondered what's one of the biggest mistakes that you would warn uh, future academicians not to make in negotiating their first job? Uh, I think uh, a failure to understand um, who's paying you and what their expectations are is, uh, is a huge error. That is, um, if someone is protecting your time, someone, that's coming out of someone's budget, and they are looking at you, and there are measures of success that they hold in their mind. You need to know that. Same thing is true on the clinical side and on the, on the rest. I'll mention two other things that I think are mistakes real briefly. When you accept positions, committee appointments, IRB, graduate medical appointments, um, either make sure there's dollars associated with it that fund that time, or be sure that that's a pathway you want to go. Uh, accepting a GME oversight position uh, is often a great time sink, and if you, um, if you enjoy it, that's fine, but if it's not the career path you're trying to create, it can take away from a lot of other things. Uh, finally, uh, a lot of places won't offer a contract. Uh, they'll just give you an offer letter and expect you to show up. Uh, the, uh, the medical world lags behind most of the rest of the business world, uh, but there's no doubt it's a business, and there's a lot of lawyers flying around. So I would get some outside advice. I would talk to um, parents, spouses, uh, get a lawyer if you want. And even most places that don't like to offer employment contracts will, and in it you can include all host of things. It may be that downstream tuition benefits are more important for you, or you want a one-year notice before they terminate you, or you want your tenure clock to start at a later date. All those things you can put in your contract and be creative. And so um, I, I prefer these days that uh, junior faculty coming on have some sort of contract that protects their rights and outlines the benefits that they're expecting. Great. Great. Well, Mike, I'd like to thank you for your candor and time this afternoon. I hope that today's discussion provides a useful framework for fellows who are getting ready to uh, uh, make the successful transition into a career in academic medicine. Well, I appreciate the time, John, and I'll apologize to all those division chiefs and department chairs whose secrets I've just ruined. I know. I, I, hope, that, uh, I hope that we haven't ruined it for all of them. You've been listening to The Fellows' Corner on the heart.org radio.